the highest compliment you can get as an executive from me is that you're an unbelievably good simplifier. Because everybody can complicate, but very few people can simplify. And if you can simplify, then you can boil a problem down to digestible components and solve it. But when people come in and add complication, it gets really hard to know what the root cause is and solve it. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Where'd you come in from? Menlo. Okay. Yeah. And are you splitting time? I do. I okay. split time coast to coast. How's it going? It's great. Like I'd love being in both ecosystems at the same time. Dude, I got to tell you, I have watched and read a lot of John McNeil oh, no. over the last so like, week or so. You're a fucking stud. I am so excited to talk to you. I just like, no. there's not many resumes that read like yours. I'm just excited, man. I'll disavow you of all that the next hour. <laughs> I, was just, I was just excited. Your friends, when I talk to them, call you Johnny Mac. Is that a, yeah. is that yeah. a term of endearment for you or what? I think, yeah, there has been almost every management team, multiple Johns. And so I ended up picking up this moniker. There's multiple Jubins on every management team I've been on too. And so we end up having to call me something else. Well, look, thank you. Yeah. I'm absolutely thrilled to do this. I have this thing where I really try and keep my prep docs as short as possible. Okay. Yours started at nine pages and I've managed to basically get it down to one. And I think I could do this entire thing without a single question or comment in front of me because I genuinely have unlimited curiosity about awesome. the rides that you've had. So thank you, man. Yeah, absolutely. I've been lucky. I generally start these things off a similar way. So I'm going to read your background back to you. So you went to Northwestern and then you went to Bain as a consultant. You spent four years there and then you started six freaking companies in a row. Is that right? That's right. Six companies, That's right. five of which have been acquired. Yeah. No, six has six so far. So six out of six have been acquired. Yeah. All six of them? All six of them. Had you started the second company before the first one had gotten acquired? No. The first four were all serial. So started them in our kitchen table, grew them, sold them to a public company, and then started the next one. And then I got to number five and I'm like, I think I want to do two at a time. So I did five and six roughly at the same time. That's ridiculous. It was fun. Oh, I have plenty of questions for you on this. Then- after doing six companies, you decide to go to Tesla. Yeah. And this was in September of 2015. Yeah. To go basically be Elon's Sheryl Sandberg. Is yeah. that fair? That's fair. Second in command. Yeah. You were the president. You basically ran everything on the go-to-market side. Go-to-market and then ended up running part of manufacturing and policy and auto finance. Like a bunch of stuff ended up getting popped on my plate. And then you went to Lyft. Yep. You were the CEO of Lyft for- 18 months. And then you started a venture firm since then called DVX Ventures. That's right. right. DVX? Yeah, DVX. Maybe my first question, because it's very timely and topical. The Elon stuff with Twitter. Yeah. Okay. Number one, does him buying this surprise you at all? Not at all. It's his favorite thing. Like a lot of people have a favorite thing, and this has got to be one of his favorite things. And so 
it doesn't surprise me at all. He is such a devotee and spends hours and hours a day really as a feedback loop on Tesla product. That's where it kind of got its origins. And he knows what he wants to do with the product because he's such a heavy user. He knows what's broken, what could be, what the opportunity could be. So no, no surprise. I didn't think so. Yeah. And does the way that he made cuts across the board, the fashion that he did it surprise you? Meaning how deep he went? He is definitely a first principle thinker. So if you think, like he's got $13 billion of debt. He's got a debt payment coming up in April. The company's losing, according to him, $4 million a day. Mm-hmm. That requires decisive action. Something has to be done. You know, he looks at that engineering team, which is larger than Tesla's engineering team. Now, let that sink in. Tesla's a $100 billion hardware company that's making stuff around the world. There are more engineers at Twitter than at Tesla. You're saying software engineers or engineers? Software engineers. Yep. Yeah. And if you booked up all engineers, still more engineers at Twitter than Tesla. And so I think he looks at the productivity per engineer and says, this has to change. And the fundamentals of the business are demanding that we change it. Uh, the balance sheet's demanding we change it. And so take decisive action. You know how he's getting kind of some of his old cast of characters together to chip in at Twitter? Yeah. Did he call you? No, like I'm busy. Would you tell me <laughs> Would you tell me if he did call you? I would. I would. If he did call you, would you go chip in? I'd help. As a friend, I would help. But I wouldn't take it on as a job. You wouldn't? No. I've got a job. You had your own company when you went right. to Tesla. Yeah. He's convincing, isn't he? He is. He's very convincing. And by the way, I don't want to sell you short. You're on like a ton of other boards along with this amazing pedigree, including the co-chair of CrossFit. You're on the board of Lulu, Yeah, Lululemon. You were recently appointed to the board of GM. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Incredible. It is incredible. It's an incredible opportunity. I was just telling you when you walked in, I have the same exact Lulu shirt. Yeah. Like these are like amazing companies that you're involved in. They are. I'm super lucky to be involved with them. So cool. Yeah. I guess maybe taking it a little bit from the top, what was conversation like for you growing up? Like at the dinner table with your family, what what would you all talk about? So I grew up in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of central Nebraska. And so what the conversation was, was just about the day, like the work we were doing outside most of the time. My mom was a school teacher's assistant. There was no business talk around our dinner table, none, because there were no business people in our family. But we didn't have much money. So we would, that kind of struggle would pop up. Like I would say, I remember when I was in like second grade, I came home and said, dad, I want a pair of Nikes. And he's like, how much are they? And I told him, he's like, I'm really sorry. We can't afford those. But if you want to buy them, you can figure out how to make money and go buy them yourself. I'm like, dad, I'm in second grade. I'm like eight years old. And he's like, no, you, you can mow lawns at some of our neighbors. And I did. So we would have conversations like that where he would just push me and nudge me. I'd say, I want to do something or have a dream or whatever. And he would just nudge me towards independently figuring that out. And that's what a lot of our discussions were like. And then there were other, there were intellectuals that would come through. He was teaching at a university and he was constantly in grad school getting extra degrees and these fantastic and super, to me, fascinating intellectuals would come across our dinner table a couple of times a month. And I'd sit in and listen to these, as a kid, listening to these adults have these really kind of wild and in-depth conversations it doesn't sound like you came from a ton of money no, none. in the farm town. None. Yeah. How'd you go to Northwestern? I went to Northwestern on two things, a scholarship 
And then I worked my way through college writing trading algorithms for derivatives at the Board of Trade in Chicago. So I'd literally stack my classes in the morning and then I'd go down and I'd code and trade at this really large options and futures trading firm in the afternoon into the evening. And then I'd go back to campus and do homework and start all over again the next day. One theme that popped up when I talked to folks that know you is how close you are with your family, your wife, your kids today. Was it super tight-knit for you growing up as well? Yeah, I think when you grow up on a farm, your whole social <laughs> network is that family. Because yeah. neighbors are a long ways away. It's the same when you grow up in a farming community. It's like you tend to be surrounded by family. And I really wanted to replicate that for my kids, even though we were raising them in a city. I wanted to replicate that closeness. This is kind of a weird question, but do you ever crave that simplicity again? Oh, uh, yeah. I have been 100 miles an hour here, mostly doing yeah. work, and I love yeah. what I do. I really do. And it's almost a blessing and a curse to love what you do because you become so consumed by it that you forget yeah. everything else that's happening in the right. world. I took a half day on Friday and I just went on a hike with nothing, no music, no podcasts, yep. just to reconnect with some version of simplicity. Yeah. Uh, do you ever feel that way? I don't know. I do. Like I grew up in really simple, it was like growing up in Mayberry and it was a very simple life. Socioeconomically, everybody was kind of in the same spot, struggling. And it was a very simple place to grow up. It tends to be a net exporter of people though, because the work is really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah, You've got a job to do at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m. every day if you've got animals and there's no days off. It's a really hard life. Do you ever find yourself in the throes of the work that you do thinking, man, should I just go back to a farm town? No. <laughs> Never. No. I love the work that I do. Yeah. Uh, and often I'm thinking the opposite. I'll be doing work and I'll be like, how did I get lucky enough to be here? Like, how did I get lucky enough to be doing this? That's a more common thought. So when you go back, have you been back to the farm town that you grew oh, up yeah. in? Yeah. You don't have any nostalgia around this feeling of, man, it would be cool if I raised my kids here. Now, like I, I felt like we could replicate a lot of that plus have the good stuff of being in a city. But when I go back, I'd love being back. I love my family back there, friends, and I love being in that world because it's a very different world than the world I live in today. One of the things that I was told is that you're very intentional about the relationship that you build with your kids. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell me more about that? Yeah. So it started for me in college. I was fascinated by these traders that I was working with, and that's a super intense job just their relationship with their kids. And I would ask them, like, just how much time do you get with your kids? Do you get to see your kids, et cetera? It became this like topic for me that I wanted to dive into, like how to be a good present parent. When we were starting companies, I'd have co-founders. And when our kids got to the age where they were doing like soccer and little league and that stuff, I said, guys, would you mind if I cut out of here every day at 4.30, coached a soccer team or coached a little league team, and then I'll be back online at like 6.37 and I'll work as long as I need to work. But I've only got this window to get time with our kids when they're little. And I want to be super intentional about that because I'm not going to get it back. And I don't want to have any regrets later. And luckily, my partners and co-founders were awesome about doing that. And they ended up doing that themselves too. You did that across all your companies? Yeah. Yeah. Did you take them on retreats too? Yeah. Like we, almost like, like date your kids. Each year we would do a father, son, I have a son and a daughter. We do a father-son trip or father-daughter trip. And we're still doing them. My kids are like out of the house now, out of college. We're still doing these trips. What do they look like? Each one of them has a passion. And so we'll try to find and follow their passion. And luckily they both love the outdoors. So they typically are like, we're going to go take a trip to place X and we're, it's just going to be you and me. And we're going to knock it out and have a blast. Couple days. Couple days, like a long weekend. How special is that? Super special. Do you have to push them or are they pushing you now? 
mostly it's uh, now I'm asking them for sure. But they, yeah. but every once in a while I get a call where like, Hey dad, would you, any chance you'd be able to take a few days off and go do something? I'm like, I'm on the next plane. Sure enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And you've always managed to find time to carve out. I wouldn't say always. It's a super, it's a big struggle. Like when you're an entrepreneur and you're starting something, it is super intense and it is all encompassing and it's a big struggle. The thing I would battle was, and I still do, is being present in those times. Like I could carve out time, but it seemed like there was always like four or five business things on my mind. Even if I was throwing snowballs around, there were things I was thinking about. And so like the struggle for me was like to be present in the moment, even though I had the time carved out. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. Is there any way to combat that? Meaning there's how much can you do, right? Like you're already carving out the time. It's hard because the synapse is always going. It seems like there is something that is that you've got to solve that's in the way of the business growing or achieving what you want it to achieve. And it seems like it's just always clicking in the background of your memory. And so it's a hard thing to wave off. Has your perspective or ability to find focus and presence changed over time or has it kind of remained the same? I would say it's probably changed nominally, <laughs> but it's a struggle for me to be fully present for sure. I've learned some techniques over time, but it's definitely something I need to get better at. And during COVID, I've been told you were going through quite great lengths to see the family and also balance your professional responsibilities. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. What were you doing? So we ended up taking care of my dear mother-in-law during COVID and having her essentially move into us and be with us in a pod. Challenge was she was in Boston. My teams are in San Francisco. And you might remember at the beginning of COVID, like nobody wanted to leave the house Mm -hmm. and certainly not fly seven hours across the country. So we did this crazy thing. We got a Sprinter van and my daughter was home from college and it wasn't her dream to like spend her sophomore year or junior year in her childhood bedroom. And so she said, dad, let's go take a road trip. We'll go coast to coast. We'll get you out to San Francisco. You can see your teams. We'll hang out there and then we'll do day trips or weekend trips from there. And then we'll come back across the country. We did that like five or six times. It was awesome. It was like found time with her, but also found time with my teams. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It was awesome. Of your six companies, which one was the hardest? It's a good question. I think the hardest one may have been number five, which is the SaaS software platform that we were selling into. It's, it's basically a fintech platform, but we were selling it into major insurers. And major insurers just take forever with their sales cycle. And so the sales cycle times were so long. And it was, for me, yeah, I'd like to see growth happen faster and growth would happen in chunks in that company. And we had a really good management team. It was generating, like we were cash flow positive almost from the beginning but just the growth in that area was tough. And what made it tough was originally we thought we had a super large TAM and it turned out the serviceable TAM was a lot smaller than we thought. So that's why growth was harder to come by. And that made it really challenging. When you're in the throes of these companies, do you start thinking about the next company? I, Not because you can help it. Yeah, like... <laughs> What I look for is a big problem area to solve. And if I trip across a problem area, then I do start spinning on that a little bit. And so I'll start thinking about that next problem opportunity. Yeah, even while I'm leading the current company I'm in. Did you raise venture money for any of these? Yeah, all of them. All of them. Did you ever come to this office? I never came to this office. No, never came to this office. I fell in with a few really great venture firms that essentially ended up writing a check into each one of the companies. Yeah. 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 And that made fundraising really efficient for us. I bet it did. Yeah. 
Also, did you mention to me, did I make this up? Do you know Scott Cook? Yeah. Former guest of yeah, the yeah. show? Yeah. How do you know Scott? Yeah. So one hack that I was taught over time was to have two sets of mentors, what I call vertical mentors and horizontal mentors. Horizontal mentors are like peers going through the same stuff you are and you can compare notes and learn from each other. The vertical mentors are people that are like 10, 20 years ahead of you in the journey and you can learn a ton from them too. When I moved out to Silicon Valley to work at Tesla, one of the people I sought out was Scott because I just so respected him. He had been at Bain and was legendary at Bain because he essentially started this expense management tool at Bain, which became the basis for Quicken and Intuit. I really respected the fact that he had been at that company for essentially 35 years, growing it and growing himself as he did that. And I really wanted to learn from him. So I reached out to him and he was gracious enough to he took the call. Take the call, and not only take the call, but take on a few meetings with me, which is great. Any learnings that really resonate with you? Yeah, a ton. He's got these methodologies that he developed at Intuit. You know, he was one of the first guys to really think about user experience. And so he's got these methodologies where you take a room full of users and you really understand what it is they really, really need versus what they're saying they want. And he's got these follow me home methods that he taught me that have been invaluable, invaluable at Tesla, Lyft, and then in each of my businesses since. He's an absolute stud. I'm really grateful to know him. And a great A good dude. A great person. A really genuinely great person. I sat down with him in this room a few months ago and we recorded together and the world stopped. Yeah. I, I just couldn't believe I was having this outer body experience where I was like, oh my goodness, this guy has all of the grace and humility yeah. and accomplishment yeah. wrapped up in this neat, thoughtful package yeah. that I couldn't help but just realize that I'm watching greatness. Like yeah, I just I, I can't explain it any other He's way. He's a goat. He's definitely uh, a goat. I, I just I was like and he would be offended to hear you say that, you know? Because <laughs> he is. He, he I, is. When you talk about just drawing great people to yourself, like a Bill Campbell, a Brad Smith the leaders that he's developed there, the companies that he's influenced outside of into it, like Amazon, he is a goat. You put Elon on that same level? He is too. Like the reason I went that I really wanted to go to work with him was I felt like he was the best practitioner of my craft as an entrepreneur. At that point in time, I couldn't point to another entrepreneur who had had four companies that they have started all worth more than $10 billion. And of course now, yeah, seven years or eight years hence, there's a couple of companies that are worth a lot more than $10 million. He is a very special entrepreneur. I think you were in the middle of a company. Yeah. How did the Tesla thing even happen? Because it is crazy to go from six companies to then working for someone, let alone working for Elon. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, it, yeah. like you went from righteous independence to whatever the opposite of that is. Totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> in fact, we would talk about that because I said, like, I haven't had a boss in like 20 years. So, like, like, I'm going to have to, yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to like relearn this muscle and you're going to have to forgive me because I'll act probably like I don't have a boss. And so we definitely had to figure that out. Like we were in the midst of selling company number five and just raise capital for company number six. And so I had to wrap those two things up. And he really wanted me to join in the early summer of 2015. And I said, I can't, but I tell you what, like I'm in the process of selling a company. It's not full time. So why don't I come just work free for you just to make sure that I can make any kind of impact that you want me to make. And so I spent a chunk of the summer. They were in the midst of trying to hit a quarter and it was pretty apparent by the math. They weren't going to hit the quarter. And as I started to 
dive in to learn the problem, I wanted to go cross shop a bunch of Tesla stores and just see what the customer journey was like. And the customer journey was, if you can get somebody into the car and test drive it and they hit the accelerator, they will not stop talking about it and they'll likely buy. So the whole thing was to get them into a test drive. And I looked at the test drive close rates and they were super low. And so I went to the stores myself and I would sign up to do a test drive and I would do a test drive and it was amazing. And nobody would call me back for like days. And I went to like eight stores around the country. Nobody called me back. So I said to the head of sales ops at the time, can you just run me a report and tell me how many test drives we've done in the last month and how many of those people have been called back? He's like, sure. Calls me back in two hours. He's like, I'm really embarrassed, but we've done like 8,000 test drives and we've only called a couple hundred people back. I said, why is that? Are people paid to give test drives? Are they paid to sell cars? Like how do the compensation systems work? And it turned out people were really unmotivated to do test drives, but not necessarily motivated to convert. And so I said, okay, how about right now we shut down the ability to do an additional test drive with an additional customer until you've closed the customer that you've already done a test drive with. And the company had to sell like 4,000 more cars to make the quarter. And they'd done 8,000 test drives with no follow-up. So we immediately made the change in Salesforce. You couldn't take a new customer until you'd followed up with your other customers. And they started to close sales like crazy. I called Elon. I said, hey, look, found this hole in the funnel and I got to beg your forgiveness, but I changed the policy. People can't do new test drives without follow-ups with the old customers. I thought I was the CEO for a second. I forgot. (laughs) Can you forgive me? He's like, oh, you're going to fit in here just fine. This is fantastic. This is exactly what I need you to do. And so I was encouraged that I could have an impact within weeks, but he was also going to give me the room to be a leader. And how'd you get connected to him? I got to credit Cheryl Sandberg with that. Like he was, he really wanted Cheryl to be his president COO. And she reached out to me and said, hey, look, I'm not a manufacturing person, but you know a lot about this space. So can I introduce you to? And so she introduced us. And you know Cheryl from a past life. Cheryl married one of my best friends in the world. I'd adored Cheryl for a long time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. When you first met him, you obviously had a lot of preconceived notions. What met up to those preconceived notions and what was different than what you thought? This is 2015, so it's hard to rewind the clock, but Elon wasn't a celebrity that he is now. Yeah. But he was every bit as intense and every bit as engaged in the business and effective. So like our first interactions were basically business cases. I have this problem in the factory. What would you do? Like kind of the interview. Yeah, exactly. Or I've got this challenge and go to market. What would you do? We would have these phone calls at random times, just going through these different cases. And yeah, I was pleasantly surprised and psyched. He was engaged in so many different areas of the business we would talk about. We'd talk about supply chain stuff and manufacturing stuff and engineering stuff. And he was clearly way down into the details of understanding each of these problems. And we'd walk through the problems in a really deep level. I found it like fascinating and fun because I think at the core, as an entrepreneur or executive, you're a problem solver. And so like we were going through these problems together and it was fun. He's got this crazy good sense of humor. He's really funny. And so every once in a while, he would bust into this serious discussion with some crazy line. And it it was just fun as we got to know each other. And I thought this guy is, he's the best at my craft. I think I want to spend some time learning from him. When you say all hours, you literally like all, all hours. hours. Yeah. There's no concept like, of time. It's all encompassing, It's like right? being a doctor on call. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Even is. when you started full time. Yeah. yeah. No matter what. Yeah. Because like you're the president of Tesla. It didn't matter. Like No, because like if something came up, we needed to talk. 
he's kind of a night owl and I'm kind of a morning owl. And so like at first it was like the phone was going off at crazy times, but that's like in the middle of his like work it, when his brains turned on for work. But then I would get time in the mornings where it was just me being able to do work with the teams because I knew he was sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> what is this guy? Is he like a great businessman or is he like more than that? I'm starting to get the sense that this guy is going to go down. It's like Steve Jobs, but like if Steve Jobs did a bunch of apples, what is this? I sort of thought like people said, hey, like you're going to go work for our generation's Thomas Edison. And I thought that was a pretty tall bar. I think about a year in, I thought I might be working for our generation's Da Vinci. This guy is so broad and so gifted at being able to take ideas into reality. Like there's a lot of thinkers that sit around and unbelievably deep conversationalists, but he is, he's a person of action and it's just wild to watch him work. Any examples that come to mind where you were like, wow. This is a week trip that we had to Hong Kong and Beijing. Yeah, we're in the back of a car in Hong Kong, uh, Tesla, and he's a big guy. And he and I are crammed into the back of this Tesla going from meeting to meeting. And we're both on our phones trying to catch up with email. And he says, hey, how fast can you type with your thumbs? I don't know. I've never timed it. He said 18 to 20 words a minute is what the average person can do. He's like, how fast can you type with your keyboard? And I said, probably close to 100 words a minute. I'm pretty good. And he said, exactly. We've degraded the input into the machine as these phones have become prolific. And we can put input into the machine five times faster in a desktop than we can these phones. What if you could think into the machine? And I said, if I could think into the machine, it would actually go a lot faster. He said, exactly. And so his chief of staff is in the front seat. And he says, you know, I've been thinking about this brain computer interface stuff. And I really want to get in front of the people that really know a lot about this. So can you set up for me a week when we get back to the States where I can meet the five top neuroscientists that are dealing with human brain computer interface. And a few weeks later, Neuralink started. It is that fast from problem identification to then going deep and understanding the problem with some of the world experts and then launching. A few days later, we were in Hong Kong in this tower, still in Hong Kong, and we had meetings kind of back to back to back. And there was like a 15 minute break between a meeting. And he walked over to the window and was looking out over Kowloon Bay. All these bridges and all this traffic backed up everywhere. And I walked over to the window and said, hey, what are you thinking about? And he said, do you ever notice that cities are built in 3D, but the roads are built in 2D? I look out the window, I'm like, well, I never really thought about it that way. And he said, yeah, what if you could build the roads in 3D? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it'd be expensive to build bridges on top of bridges, but tunneling is actually really cheap in comparison to any other form of construction. I've been reading a lot about tunneling and looking out this window, I could see where you could build tunnels at different levels going in different directions and you could solve the traffic problem here. Turns around, his chief of staff says, can you get my, this guy, his favorite engineer, uh, SpaceX, can you get so-and-so on the phone? We're like, hey, it's like 2.30 in the morning. He's like, ah, you won't mind. (laughs) And so get the guy on the phone. He says, hey, can you find out everything that you can about tunneling machines. I'm going to call you in a few hours. A few hours later, they're on the phone. And the guy says, yeah, the technology hasn't changed in decades. And here's how fast they can bore. And I think if you change these 
things about the mechanism, you could bore faster. But what I found is if you do a 12 meter radius hole, you don't have to reinforce it. So as long as you're digging through rock, you can take one tunneling machine and you can make a lot of tunnels. And I was like, how much do these things cost? He's like, well, you can buy a secondary one for, I don't know, five or six million bucks. And uh, Elon says, okay, buy it. And we're flying back on, you know, four or five days from now. I'll meet you at SpaceX and Hawthorne. Let's start digging. And the boring company was formed a few months after that. So within like a handful of days, he's processing a human brain computer interface, traffic problem solving through tunnels, starting companies on both. And that's just the way he processes. He looks for problems and then immediately goes into action very, very uniquely. As a meaningful Tesla shareholder, then and now probably, aren't you in the back of your head thinking a little bit, which by the way, I suspect sometimes people might think of you, hey, there's only so much compute power in your brain. By the way, Tesla was not the darling that it is now at that point. Exactly. He's diverting attention away when the business is like on the brink of dying. Is that fair? Well, I would say two things. One is he's grabbing super capable people to run those. Yeah. So he's not running OpenAI, Neuralink, and a borrowing company, et cetera. And when he's at Tesla, he's such a disciplined first principle thinker. He is keeping the organization focused on the stuff that really matters. And he's interrogating and investigating that stuff with intensity every week. So there is this weekly cadence of release, basically, that happens because he's there and expecting progress and expecting you to release the stuff you talked about last week, and then we're on to the next problem. There's a very effective hyper-focus that he's got on the core things that need to be solved in the business. He lets his people handle all the other stuff. So he's not distracted by that other stuff, which clears then time and space for him to think about new things. When you joined, that was September of 2015? Yeah. What was the state of Tesla like when you joined? So we were just releasing Model X. We hadn't released it yet when I joined. And then we went through a mini manufacturing hell. uh, Model S. Getting Model X out. Model X. X. Okay. X is the hatchback. X is the uh, SUV with the Falcon wing doors. And so one of the first crises that we were dealing with was we can't get these Falcon wing doors to align with the car and therefore we can't ship cars. And for a company that doesn't have a lot of cash, that's a big deal. So literally, though, my first fall, we were diving into manufacturing challenges with the Model X and getting those solved, which then turned into service challenges. We were really running on the edge of viability a lot, but we had super dedicated people that were keeping us off the edge. And at that time, was both the Model 3 and the Model S in production? Only Model S. Only so Model we were, S. We were a one product company at that point. Was Tesla hitting the numbers that it was expecting to hit with the Model S? Had that thing started to ramp up? It had started to ramp up, but we definitely had to generate demand because people in 2014 and 2015, the market for $120,000 electric vehicles wasn't huge. And so we had to generate demand and work really hard at generating demand and then really had to work hard at generating the supply of Model X. Let's start with the demand. Can you double click on that? Yeah. Elon doesn't believe in marketing. No. So there's no like, hey, John, go put a couple billboards up no. and let's get this thing spun up. No. He doesn't believe in marketing, right? Like, that's true. I didn't believe in paid marketing. Right. But there are other forms of marketing. Definitely believes in earned marketing, which is using the press and platforms as free accelerators and amplifiers of the message. And definitely believes in that. And then definitely believes in the stores as billboards. So the stores were placed in places where 
if you were going out to eat or going to a movie, you would come across this store in your daily life and maybe a curiosity would bring you inside and then a team would educate you about how crazy good these vehicles are and then get you in a test drive. And so it was a very different way of thinking about taking cars to market for sure. How do you generate demand how do you even go about solving the problem? The first things that we looked at were, okay, like where we knew where we were selling a lot of cars, which is California and Norway and China and Norway and China for different reasons, government and policy reasons. And so we looked at like our awareness in California was like, if you went to go buy a luxury car over $80,000, we were in the consideration set like 40% of the time. So that means like four out of 10 times, somebody's buying a car that expensive. Tesla was one of the cars they were considering. If you took that to New York, we we're in the consideration set 2% of the time. So the question is, okay, like how do we get awareness up so that when people are buying those cars, they're actually even thinking about looking at a Tesla. And that was a lot of press strategy, like focused on New York. Let's get Elon out to New York. Let's get the cars out to New York. Let's get them in front of investors. Let's get them in front of the press. And let's start to get momentum built around the story of Tesla. So there's awareness at the top of the funnel. And then let's have enough stores in the right location. So in the mid funnel, that we're capturing that awareness and turning it into interaction with the product. And then we've got people that can take it down through the funnel and close it. And that whole funnel concept was new. Like we developed a whole process in a way to create leads and then take them down through that funnel. And we made it systematic and global so that we could, for every little trickle of demand we got, we could make the most of it. That's incredible. And then on the supply side. Yeah. You have a demand problem on the Model S because it's expensive and yeah. you just don't have enough awareness of the brand. Right. And then on the Model X, you have a, a supply, supply problem. problem, meaning it's not even getting out of the manufacturing door. Right. Why? Or initially it was an alignment problem. The doors just didn't align well with the chassis. And, and that's so crazy. I mean, like it's crazy hard not, engineering. Like it's so hard. Like there's a reason, obviously it looks sick, yeah. but there's a reason nobody does it. Well, it's super hard engineering. And so we had literally hundreds of Model Xs that were produced starting to pile up around the factory and outside of the factory. And so we had service technicians in the Bay Area and then around the world who would fly in to help us fix these so we could actually get them out. And then we took that team, that core team back into the factory to start to now problem solve with our colleagues in engineering and manufacturing to try to figure out how we fix this problem. So we're not essentially having to manufacture cars or touch them twice. And it was a challenge that lasted for like eight or nine months, but we finally broke through it and solved it. I've heard folklore that that time of your life at Tesla trying to solve this thing, I think you brushed over it pretty quickly, but it was, I've heard pretty intense. It was super intense. Like we literally were in the factory, sleeping in the factory, trying to figure this out. We being you and Elon and the team. Yeah. Uh, there's a team of people that's trying to solve this problem. And Elon was definitely directly involved in trying to solve it too. That team stayed committed until we had it solved. But the, all kinds of like, all, you talk about like a cross-functional effort to use like an old phrase. It was definitely that. So these like myths and legends of sleeping in the factory, that's real. That's 100% real. Yeah. Yeah. Like because that factory runs, those factories run three shifts. And so it's not like you could identify the problem and get it solved by the time that the next shift started. And so then you're into the next shift and 
the problem was so vexing. I was trained in lean manufacturing. And so they have these techniques of problem identification and locating where the problem is. And this, the problem would move around. It was completely vexing. And so from shift to shift, it was move around. And we'd, so we would try stuff like we'd implement it in one shift and then see if we could carry it over into the other shifts and if it would make an impact. And the first few things we tried didn't work. And then we started to make chip away at progress. And the progress was definitely chippy. It was not one big quantum discovery. As you're trying to solve this problem, is the pressure cooker? Do the walls start closing in on you metaphorically it, yeah, and literally feels speaking? A little, feels a little bit like that Death Star moment <laughs> where they're getting crushed in the garbage contractor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because the company, we had about a quarter's worth of cash in the company. A quarter. A quarter. And so like three months. Yeah. So we had to make this work. Like we had to get these cars into the hands of customers and get paid for them so we could get the cash back into the company. That's why we were sleeping on the floor. We couldn't take like months and months and months to solve this problem. We didn't have months and months. And it wasn't always like that. But a few times we had these critical life or death situations for the company that we had to be there and committed to getting the solve. And revenue doesn't get recognized until it's in the customer's driveway? Until the car is paid for and has left our lot. Left the lot. Left our delivery center or our sales center. I'm fascinated by this problem solving thing that, that you have to continue to go back to at, at Tesla and I think seemingly throughout your career. When the problem is so vexing. Yeah. And by the way, this is not like a software bug in code. No. Not to like discredit the challenge of that either. That can be really hard too. That can be me. really hard too. <laughs> yeah, it can be really hard. But this is different. This is. And this is also not your core competency, meaning like you're not the lead hardware engineer no. at Tesla. No. Like you're the president, but you're there. But yeah, but the head of engineering, head of manufacturing, which today are dear friends, because I think we were in those bunkers together. Like we were solving this problem together and we were literally working around the clock together saying, okay, what about this? What about this? What if we did this? And we were all joined at the hip. There are no titles, no functions. Like we're Problem solvers, pure problem solvers in that moment. When you're like in the depths of this, how do you create space? Meaning like, how do you get away from work? One of my hacks is to essentially sacrifice sleep, get up early in the morning and take a run or a bike ride. And that space for me is where my brain, something happens where I get, it becomes like my idea generation time. It's a really freeing kind of time. So I would just get up in the morning before I went in back to the factory, or even if I was at the factory, I'd have a pair of shoes there and some running shorts. I'd go take a run. Uh, that got me the space that I needed. And everybody kind of had that hack in their own way to find their space so that we could come back and hit the problem hard again the next day. During that time, I'm super curious. What was your relationship to the job? Were you thinking, I can't believe I signed up for this? Or is it exactly what you were hoping it would be? I think the not so hidden secret of entrepreneurs is you reach these existential moments. Not, I wouldn't say frequently, but you definitely see them as an entrepreneur. And so these existential moments start to become part of the toolkit where you know how to stay calm, keep it team focused and energized through those existential moments. And they're a different style. Like Elon's style is way different than mine. And we all find our own style to do that. So I wasn't regretting it at all. I was saying like, I've been through these existential moments before as an entrepreneur and as a leader. And so I was just drawing on the skills that I had learned over time in that moment and leaning on really, really strong team members at the same time. There's a closeness that gets developed, not only amongst the team that we were working with, but the workers that we were working with in the factory. 
every shift has a, what's called a standup before the shift starts and everybody gets in a big circle. And usually it's a supervisor and team leader telling the team, like basically like a coach does on an athletic field. Here's what we're going to do today. Here's the game plan. Here's how many we're going to produce. Here's the challenge we're going to have. Here's who's on, who's on point for the challenge, et cetera. And we would sit in those standups and these folks would become friends. And I remember one night we were there for the start of the second shift And one of the guys on that second shift had passed away in a car accident the night before. It was terrible. And everybody knew this guy. He's just a big personality, great guy on the floor. We're standing in this circle in the stand-up, and there's a couple of hundred people in this stand-up. And I said, hey, let's just have a moment of silence for our friend. And so guys standing next to me was one of our supervisors, huge guys, like 6'6", maybe 250. He looked like he could be a college linebacker. He said, uh, let's all join hands. And so all of a sudden I had these two huge hands grabbing mine. And the guy said, bow your heads. Let's have a moment of silence. So I kind of bow my head. I'm holding hands with these guys. I'm thinking, I'm in a factory. This is really kind of an out-of-body experience. And then I hear this people moving around me. I looked around and everybody was down on their knees. And it was like this surreal moment where this community had gathered to mourn the loss of one of the members of the community and we were there and we just happened to be in a factory solving problems. And that kind of connection is really, really special. And so those existential moments didn't create any doubt in me that I was in the right place. What an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And on the people side, how involved are you in the recruiting of people? How involved is Elon in the recruiting of talent at Tesla? One of the cultural hacks there is that to get in as a final interview at this point in time, I don't know if it's that way now, but at this point in time, if you were hired in a manager or above in my organizations, I was the last interview. For Elon, if you were an engineer at a certain level, even individual contributor engineers were interviewed by him as the final interview. And we were looking for two things, an evidence that this person was world-class to keep the standard high. And then culturally, were they a fit? Were they incredibly capable, but also humble and an ability to be like a great team member? And we were looking for those two things, like a standard of capability and then a cultural fit. We consider ourselves the last filter. How do you find world-class? What patterns or signals are you looking You're for? You're looking for somebody who's actually had world-class impact in their prior role, or they've got the potential for that if they're a young person. Literally, the question is pretty straightforward in those interviews. Like, tell me what you've done that's world-class. And then we're going to dive into that because I'm trying to figure out, did you do the work or did somebody else do the work? And you're kind of claiming credit for it. And so we would go deep to try to figure out does this person have an understanding of the problem? Was it them that directed the solution around the problem or this cool insight or a cool new feature or whatever? And we wanted to see how fast they processed, how fast their synapse was, how effective they were at getting to a uh, solution, communicating that solution, getting teams around that. And then we would go reference the heck out of that to make sure that what they told us was actually true. And if that turned out to be the case, you were going to be a great member of the team. And are you more interested in what they choose to be world-class or rather that they have complete and utter autonomy over the like ideation to execution of whatever it is that they deem to be world-class. You don't have to be a great individual. Like we were hiring people that were going to eventually be responsible for large teams. So you've got to demonstrate the ability to get work done through others and with others too. Did Elon ask you that question? Yeah. What did you say? I had just started this company and it was because our 
son was turning 16, he was going to get his driver's license. And I was scared to death he was going to be texting while driving and kill himself or kill somebody else. And so I went to find a solution for that. And there wasn't any on the market. Then I started to get into the capabilities of the phone. This was 2012 at this point, 2012, 2013. So the iPhone had been out for three years. It was basic device compared to what it is now. But I started to understand what the accelerometers could tell you and what the uh, GPS sensors could tell you. And it could tell you if a car was in motion, basically. And it could also tell you if somebody was in the driver's seat. That was really tricky to figure out because GPS is only accurate to within 30 feet. With a physics PhD friend of mine, we figured this out. And so we were actually able to solve something that had never been solved before. And that is locate the phone in the car. And if that phone was in the driver's seat and the screen was unlocked, that's danger ranger, right? You want that person not to be texting and things like that. They could definitely have the GPS open for maps, but you didn't want them like interacting with the phone. And so I walked Elon through like how we figured out the physics to figure out where somebody was sitting in the car. And we use the accelerometers basically, like when you get into the car from any other point, you've got a pretty straight entry into the seat. But when you get into the driver's seat, you got to miss the steering wheel. And so that you swing your body differently. And so the accelerometer pattern of the phone shows a different pattern. And so it turned out to be a really straightforward solution. It took us a long time to figure this out. And then we patented it. And so I walked him through that and I said, okay, now here's what we do with that data to be able to score how people drive. If you watch any sports and you see like Aaron Rodgers on State Farm commercials about getting scored while you drive and you see all state guys talking about getting scoring while they're driving, that's this technology. This company is behind all that. And so I walked him through like how we solved the initial physics problem and then how we solved the data problem and then how we turned that into a score. And that conversation kept going and turned into what's today Tesla Insurance. Because we figured out we had all that data too at Tesla, so we could just manufacture our own insurance. And we could turn the car business, which is this episodic, I want to sell you, and it's something every five years, to an ARR business, which really changes the economics and has. As a result, Tesla's gross margins are three times that of traditional OEs because they've got all this additional revenue flowing in off the car. What questions were you really keen on asking him? in the interview? Like, what did you need to figure out about this guy or about this company? I remember my first question was like, why are you looking for something like this now? Like, what problem are you really trying to solve? Like for a job like yours, you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what problem are you trying to solve in this business or with this position? I really wanted to get get after that and understand like both the breadth and depth of the role. That was really important to me. And then I want to understand who he was. How do you define success for the people that are around you? What do you like to work with? What do you like to communicate with? how do you develop trust? You know, I'd read the Ashley Vance biography and I'd talked to a bunch of people that were either on the team or had been on the team. I said, you know, trust seems to be an issue. Tell me how you develop trust with people because I really want to understand the secret decoding to that. And so I just wanted to get to know him as an executive, as an entrepreneur and as a person. Those are my three primary objectives. Yeah. And I think you did figure out the, what did you call it? The decoder ring? The secret decoder ring. Yeah. I think you did. People have called you the Elon whisperer. I don't know about that. Or the Elon bufferer, maybe a more apt explanation, but what are some of the things you figured out? He was really articulate. And when I asked him like define success and successful relationship. And like one of the things he said was, Hey, look, I don't like people sitting on bad news. Bad news has to come first and then we'll hop into problem solving mode. But if bad news gets delayed, it only gets worse and it compounds. And sometimes it compounds logarithmically. And so you can have a little thing turn into a big thing really fast, which is in a situation where you don't have a lot of cash and hardware business, a big deal. So I just, I learned things like that to come to him early to say, Hey, look, I got surprised by this. 
and here's what we're doing about it. But if you want to get involved, like hop in with us, but no, we've got it, but I just need to let you know. And that helped us develop a trust. Meaning just keeping them up to date. Not just up to date, but like in any business, there's stuff going on all the time, but sort of filtering out the stuff that really mattered and that could impact the brand or the product or the future of the business. And then not trying to hide those things and solve them, but saying right up front, like, we got a problem. Yeah. And here's the problem. Here's how we understand it. Here's the way we think we're going to attack it. Got any feedback? You want to be involved? Or you want me to just let you know how it's going? Yeah. On the cultural fit question, it reminds me a little bit of, I sat down with Ali Godzi, the Databricks Mm -hmm. CEO. I don't know if you know Ali, but they have a notorious culture of intensity and accountability. Yeah. It starts with Ali. Like you talk to him and you're like, yep, I get it. Yeah. That's where it starts. And one of the things that we talked about was how there is a little bit of self-selection that comes with that culture where you know if you're applying to Databricks or you're applying to Tesla. Yeah. This isn't a chill under the mango tree job. No. So did you feel like- There are no mango trees on that campus. (laughs) No. We would describe to people, you're not joining regular army, you're joining special forces. And so there's an intensity- around that. There's a camaraderie around that. To be successful in the special forces, you got to depend on each other. And that means ego's out the door and humility is in because we're very dependent on each other. And I needed to make sure that somebody really could live that to be a part of that special forces kind of a context. The revisiting the marketing thing, the other dot that struck me was that Lulu doesn't did people get offended calling it Lulu? Like, no, is it, is no, it like that's a, a, that's how people refer to it. And you're right. Like I got called about joining the Lulu board and I said, I don't know anything about leggings. And they said, no, no, no. This is such a parallel to the business you're in. We're vertically integrated. We're vertically integrated into the retail channel where we only have our own stores and we don't do any marketing, zero paid marketing. It's all grassroots. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a great situation I just had learned over time that being on outside boards was helpful because you get to look at back at your own business through a different lens. And I felt like the Lulu was going to be a really great lens for me to look back at Tesla. And I did. I learned stuff that Lulu did that was really helpful at Tesla. And I think vice versa, I was able to help the Lulu team with some of the stuff we were discovering. And the good thing is we were neighbors in almost every mall. And so I could go to a mall in Shanghai, I could go to a mall in Dubai and Paris, and there would be a Tesla store and a Lulu store. So I could actually get two store visits for one trip. Their customer experience in that retail setting was really similar to what we were trying to accomplish at Tesla. And I had great admiration for how they got consistency around the world and really learned that from them and tried to bring as much as that as I could back into Tesla. So cool. It's so cool. The core to both companies is this devotion to what I call perfect product. Make the product perfect, not at first release, but have this commitment to continue to make the product better, 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 better. So you're just wowing the customer and surprising them with awesomeness. It's really hard to compete with that. The retail is the and the lack of marketing is the wrapping, the core, the kernel is an unbelievably well-conceived and constructed product. Can you talk about what the expression or phrase, make them talk about you at dinner tonight, means to you from Tesla? (laughs) Yeah. We had this challenge when Model 3 rolled out. We had more demand than we'd ever seen. And we had to hire a bunch of people to help us with that demand, delivering cars, first manufacturing the cars, delivering the cars, et cetera. We were hiring people so fast, we couldn't train them under the existing system fast enough to get them productive and out in their jobs. 
and the existing training plan was like 30 days. Like you're in training in like a classroom for a week and then you're shadowing somebody on the sales floor for two weeks and then you're being shadowed for a week. It's like 30 days and we did the math and we're like, we don't have enough time for this. So I said to my team, like, we got to figure out something else. You can't take 30 days to train somebody. You get two hours. And they're like, that is impossible. You're crazy. And I said, well, the math just doesn't work this way. Like we got to get people trained the same day. So I'm giving you two hours. And the team like struggled because they looked at the current paradigm first rather than first principles. They looked at the current paradigm and said, what can we cut out? We came back to first principles, which is what do they have to learn? Like, what do we want the customer experience to be in a Tesla store at its essence? We want you to have this magical surprise, delight, awesomeness kind of experience. That's what we want, right? Okay. How do you train somebody to do that? You get them into a mindset. One of the people, I forget who it was, said, yeah, we just have to have a phrase to describe the mindset. And I was like, the most awesome thing is if somebody leaves the store and goes home and talks about that Tesla experience at dinner. So how about we just get the people in the mindset of make somebody talk about you at dinner tonight. Do something so cool, so creative, so awesome that they'll talk about you at dinner tonight. And we said, oh, we don't have to have two hours to train somebody. We could just use that phrase. Yeah, that kind of encompasses it. So that became like the mantra for that period of time when we were trying to get thousands of people out into the retail stores to take care of Tesla customers and into the service centers. And we just said, make them talk about you at dinner tonight. That's what the mindset that we want. And people started to do incredibly cool stuff for customers. Like what? There's a guy in Florida who ran our service center in South Florida and a family needed to get their Model X fixed and they couldn't get them in into service for like a week or two. And the father of this family called the service manager. He said, hey, I really need to get the car in because my wife's pregnant and she's going to deliver every day, any day. And this is her car. If she needs to get to the hospital, it's got to be fixed. During that call, the guy's wife started to go into labor. So they took the second family car and took her to the hospital. And our service manager came over to the house picked up the Model X, got it repaired for them, like overnight, had some folks stay extra shift, had it repaired, delivered it to the hospital. The kids had been at the hospital with the mom and the dad. He took the kids to the babysitter, went to the grocery store, loaded up their fridge, then went back to the service center for the next day. Didn't sleep. And this customer called and eventually got to me and said, you wouldn't believe what this guy did. This is unbelievable. What a great human, first of all. But like, you've got to be so proud of this person. So I called him up. I said, what in the world possessed you to do this? He said, well, you told us to make him talk about you at dinner tonight. I was going to make him talk about me at dinner. Like I filled the fridge with groceries. They're going to talk about me. And that kind of stuff happened around the world. It was really a special era. I got to tell you, everyone describes you as like off the charts, smart, intelligent, all these things, right? As I've gotten to know you and I sit across the table from you and I like learned about you without sitting here, you're like the great simplifier. Like it's almost this unassuming smart where you make things very easy. And even when I think about like the Elon decoder, I think Elon is so off the charts smart that sometimes it becomes overwhelming and intimidating. It's difficult to translate that into normal people speak. And it feels like one of the things that you're world-class at is being able to simplify what should be a pretty complex thing. 
Do you agree with that? Is that a fair? Like, it, it feels. I, like, I, I don't, I don't know. know that I'm world class. I want to be world class at it, but I got to say, the highest compliment you can get as an executive from me is that you're an unbelievably good simplifier, because everybody can complicate, but very few people can simplify. And if you can simplify, then you can boil a problem down to digestible components and solve it. But when people come in and add complication, it gets really hard to know what the root cause is and solve it. So like you've just, that's the highest compliment I think that you can receive in business or in science or other places is like if you're a simplifier, it's an unfair advantage, I think. And it's a skill I totally work on to try to get better at. You work on it. Yeah. It's not surprising given the like kind of simple roots that you come from. That's the way it is. Like I imagine, again, I'm not trying to connect dots that maybe don't exist, but like when you're in a farm town, there is a problem and you got to figure out like how to solve the problem. Point blank. I attribute to my dad and my grandfather. They were really at their core, simple guys, simple men. And I spent a lot of time with them and they had a lot of problems. Like we would problem solve, okay, like the tractor's broken down and this part, like you can't get the part. We're going to have to make the part ourselves. I think that's where I absorbed it from them was just like simplifying problems and like being calm. They were always calm. There was no panic. There was no hair on fire. They were just calmly saying, okay, this happened. We'll get through it. Let's figure it out. I attribute that to them. Is there a skill? You say you work on it. Yeah. How do you work on it? If you boiled a problem down to its essential elements, like Elon calls these first principles or physicists call these first principles, but you know when you've got the problem boiled down to those essential elements. And when you don't, You also know that. And so like, I'll catch myself and say like, you haven't really done the work yet to understand the depth of the problem to get to the core, core elements. And so get in there and dive in and understand more and do more work. And then can you communicate this simply? And when I can't communicate it simply, I know I got more work to do. And so it's a constant thing I work on for sure. Can you talk about your 20% rule that I'm referring to? When you're in a business, often the people that are facing the customers who are like in support, in a software company or in a retail company, they're getting firsthand primary feedback from customers about what they love and what they hate. And oftentimes those people, the people at the front lines in your company have the answers to what you need to fix. A lot of companies don't go seek their input because the idea is, hey, I went to such and such school or such and such business school. I'm an executive. I ought to know the answer. And I'd learned this from the Japanese when I was learning lean manufacturing from the Toyota guys. And they had this principle and the principle was the frontline worker knows. So your job as the leader is to go ask humbly. And this is a very cool thing about Japanese culture. So their leaders would literally make time each week to go spend time with all the people that run the manufacturing lines to understand what was broken about the product. And then they would do the same with the people that were out selling the cars, et cetera. And I learned from that. And so my 20% rule is to go spend 20% of my time, so one day a week, roughly, with people who are on the front lines. And I totally love it, because when I come back, you start to see the pattern recognition of what needs to be fixed, or where the gaps are in the market, and if we just had this, like we'd be crushing it. I said to my my, my people, like, I've got this 20% rule, and I want you to follow this 20% rule too. And I said to Elon, like, you won't see me at least a day a week, because I'm gonna be somewhere in the world, in a service center, in a support center or in a retail store, interacting with people who are on the front lines because they know what's wrong. And it may not seem leveraged, but I got to tell you, it's super leveraged work. You're like undercover boss over here. Yeah, exactly. Do they know who you are? Yeah, they do. But they also know when I come, I'm going to ask a question. And the question is, if you had my job for a day, if you had the keys, 
what are the two things you would do to make this place better? And they have to be prepared with an answer for that. And so they're really thoughtful about it. And so they, yeah, they know who I am and they typically know I'm coming. I try to surprise them. It's really hard. They prep with that answer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because people were really clear. Hey, if I were the CEO, I would make sure that this thing gets fixed because this is crazy. We do this to people. And then I would bring that. Sometimes I would just take my iPhone and say, say that again. And I'd record it and I'd bring it back to a team, like the engineering team. And like engineers are great. Like I started as a software engineer. You hate to hear people, like your code is driving people crazy. So engineers would typically drop what they were doing and just fix it. They're like, oh, this doesn't take months. This is a few lines of code. I can totally fix this. So we'd see these rapid like improvements. And then people on the front line would get like encouraged. They're like, wow, they're doing something with this feedback. Stuff's getting better. And then that would start a flywheel of real positive momentum. You know, Scott Cook also studied a lot of the Toyota manufacturing methods. Yeah, it's pretty special stuff. Like if you learn it, it's so applicable in almost every business context. What Twilio does is every engineer, every quarter is required to go be on a sales meeting. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of this exact same thing. I don't know if they still do this today. Hopefully not because it's actually kind of gross. But when they close deals with customers, they would trade shoes with the customer and they had customer shoes hanging all over their office. And it's literally metaphorical of living in the customer's shoes. And I think your approach to being on the front lines is a proxy for living in the customer's shoes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You joined Lyft. Okay. Yeah. And then you spent a year and a half there. You took them public. Yeah. And part of the team that did that. Yep. 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 Part of the team that did that. You were the COO. Yeah. What's interesting to me, and this is just a tee up for the question, is that when you wrote your blog post for DVX. Yeah. The first sentence of the blog post was the era of blitzscaling and hyperscaling appears to be coming to an abrupt halt or at the very least a massive rethink. And that was coming off the heels of leaving left. Yeah. It got me thinking, are those two related? Yeah. hundred percent related. Good insight on your part. So when capital is free, there's a lack of discipline that takes place. And so one of the indications of that in the rideshare market was that you could use capital to essentially discount and build share. Now, what they didn't realize at the time where there's two diabolical things happening with that approach. One is the assumption was share was sticky. And if you train customers to shop for price, they will have both apps open, they will shop for price, and they will not be loyal. So you're not really achieving share. The share you're achieving is illusory. And the second thing is you're commoditizing the product. So now you're training customers. There's no difference between our two products except price. And so it's a race to the bottom, essentially. And in that business, the gross margins were negative. A business with gross margins cannot survive. And because capital was free, investors were continuing to shove money or shovel money into a cash incinerating business and there was no discipline to fix it. And so both companies got out on their roadshow. Both companies being Uber Uber and Lyft. Lyft. Uh, In this arms race that they were in. In this arms race. And part of the arms race was get public to raise more capital to continue the arms race. And what they were told by their investors and bankers, what we were told is it's growth, 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 growth. That's all that matters. So keep pouring money into this steam room and make sure the growth happens And we got out on our first investor meetings in the IPO and the roadshow, and we started to hear about path to profitability. And they were not concerned at all about growth. The iBankers and the investors had it wrong. They wanted to know what the path to profitability was. We had no slides for this because the assumption was that the hyperscaling 
method would continue and that investors would support that. And the public investors, to their credit, this is back in 2018, were starting to develop discipline around this already, and they were demanding a path to profitability. And I had a couple of friends at Uber who were out on their roadshow and I got in touch with them. I said, are you hearing this? And they said, yeah, we have no slides for this either. I had then reflected on that and said, okay, if we're building businesses, what we do at DVX is we launch businesses from scratch and then we scale them. And one of our disciplines is we have to have positive gross margins of at least 50% before we start scaling. We're not going to take it on the assumption that we're eventually going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out at the beginning And then when we pour dollars in to accelerate, those dollars are going to have really positive returns. And that was the point of that opening line of what we're doing at DVX. We're doing something very different than has been the paradigm that has existed for the last X number of years while capital is free. Because capital is not going to be free going forward. And it turns out that was prescient in the sense that capital is not free now. You can choose to be honest or not, but were you a little bit of a black sheep coming in as the new person advising them? that this way of doing things is not the way. It was really foreign to me because I had grown this business, this discipline up as an entrepreneur of not to discount. Because once you discount, you're, di- you're, you you're are conditioning the customer. Conditioning the customer and you're on a very slippery slope. It's hard to recover from. And then that had been reinforced at both Tesla and Lulu where there is no discounting, zero discounting. Elon used to say, not even my mom gets a discount. Like we as employees didn't get a discount. I pay what you pay at retail for a Tesla car as an executive at Tesla. And the reason was that like you can't, you start to cheapen the product and condition the customer. So it was really foreign to me that the whole mentality was, no, we're just going to discount the heck out of this and we'll have a healthy business as we develop share. And so I was a very much a contrarian voice in that saying, I don't think that's how this works over time. In fact, all these cars have an Uber sticker and a Lyft sticker on them who are drivers. You're teaching the drivers that there's no difference in this product and you're teaching the consumers there's no difference in this product. Commodity products tend to have a valuation in the low single digits of EBITDA multiples. So if that's what you want as an outcome, that's how the physics works here. But if you want something different as an outcome, you've got to control the profit pool, which means your product has to be different. So there's a reason why Apple controls the product pool and mobile. There's a reason why Lulu controls the profit pool in athleisure and Tesla now controls the profit pool in autos. You've got to step out of this paradigm into another paradigm. But it was a very contrarian view for sure. One of the things that I it got me thinking about was how much work you did in the precipice of joining Tesla and Elon to make sure that it was the right fit. Did you miss this? I spent a ton of time with the founders and the team, but what I missed was their willingness to execute against this. That's what I missed. Yeah. And ultimately, did it happen? No. Well, it's happened. Like it's, I, I would say like it's- you were out before it happened. I would say they both Uber and Lyft discovered price discipline and uh, have put price discipline back into the market. But even this quarter, you see that in the quarter results, Lyft is discounting at record levels to try to preserve their share. So even though they took positive steps in terms of raising the price, there hasn't been product differentiation on the Lyft side. There has on the Uber side, which is why Uber is trading for a multiple that is five or seven times higher than Lyft's because they have now differentiated their product. And you can get different levels of product, but you can also get 
groceries delivered and food delivered and packages delivered. And they've got a very different value prop to their drivers and a very different value prop to their consumers. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the time when you joined Tesla going from a single to a multi-product company. Yeah. When you joined Lyft, was the writing on the wall for you that this needs to be a multi-product company if you're never going to... Yeah. I thought clearly it had to be a multi-product company, both to get the economics of the drivers to really kind of work and also to have the value prop to the consumer really work. You burned enough political capital where just you left or you got let go? I left because I wasn't able to affect that change. And I figured rather than banging my head against a wall, I'll just go now, put my money where my mouth is and do this with DVX and we'll launch great companies with this sort of discipline from the beginning. Because we've seen the kind of value that gets destroyed if you don't do that. Did you realize if you're going to work for someone, it probably better be Elon? I just feel like you'll probably never be able to work for someone again now. Is that fair? It's funny. Like I've got a a very good friend gives me fantastic advice. And uh, he essentially said that he said, you've worked for yourself basically for your whole career with the exception of maybe the world's greatest entrepreneur. So he said, I don't really think you can work for other people. And in a moment of honesty, I said, yeah, like Elon was a really special guy to work for and it's tough to hold that bar. And so then I'm probably better off just working for me versus working for other people. When you get asked to be on the board of GM, how does that work? Does Mary Barr call you? Mary and I got introduced through a mutual friend. She wanted to talk about sort of how you take a hardware first orientation and turn that into a software first orientation. So one of the reputations that Tesla has is a computer on wheels and there's a real software first mentality there. And so we had an initial conversation, got to know each other, and I really found her to be a both a compelling person, compelling leader. She's an engineer, so she gets deep into the heart of problems, which I really enjoyed. We started to have a series of conversations uh, and getting in depth on a particular issue. And as I started to think about it, I said, you know, this is an iconic company. Like one of the few things my dad ever bought new that he was so proud of was the Chevy Impala in 19... 19- 70. I remember him coming home. He was so psyched. He got a bunch of books from his book collection, put them in the front seat so I could sit outside in the driveway and pretend to drive this car. And he would be in the passenger seat. We'd do these pretend trips. And I was like, Chevy had this like impact on my life. It's this iconic American brand, but yet they've got to, on one vector, really change their engineering. On a second vector, really change their manufacturing. On a third vector, change their supply chain. Fourth, change their go-to-market. There's a lot of things they got to get right. And I felt like they were making surprising progress and really, I think, courageous decisions on each one of those vectors. And I think Mary can probably be, she probably will deserve to be elevated amongst the really great leaders in that industry in history if she makes this transition happen. She's such an effective leader that over time, as we got to know each other, she said, hey, would you consider joining the board? It was hard to say no, because I felt like this is a company that I could help. One of our missions at Tesla was to have more electric vehicles on the road, not less, and to have an iconic combustion company successfully transitioned to an iconic electric vehicle company would be an amazing outcome to support her in. So that's how that happens. When people ask me, like, how do you get on boards? I often say to them, you have to be useful to CEOs because that's who you serve on the board. You're a sounding board. And so if you're a useful sounding board, you'll have board opportunities and want to be a useful sounding board to marry. It's amazing. It's got to be a pretty cool board to be on. It's like I'm super humbled to be a part of it. That's incredible. Super humbled. Last thing on DVX, I find what you're doing fascinating. It's a little bit of the Sutter Hill model. Can you talk about it? Yeah. So I was totally inspired by the guys at Sutter Hill, to be honest, where 
they create companies from scratch. They have a method, a process. So coming all the way back to like the Toyota production system or lean manufacturing, there's a method by which Toyota does their business on a daily basis. It's a method there that can be taught and people follow it. And so I've often wondered, could you create a method to create companies? And then I got to know Mike Spicer and the team at Sutter Hill, and they had created this method over 20 years. And they're savants in the data center. And when you look back at Snowflake or Prism or Pure, this like long series of companies that they've created through this method where they see an opportunity, they build an MVP themselves, they look for product market fit, and they look to go to market fit. And then once they get that, they form a team and start to build a company out of it. And it's very methodical. And they run these companies through stage gates. And I had had this experience in six startups. Like you could run companies through these stage gates and really discipline in a disciplined way, start to really create and manufacture companies. So Sutter Hill totally inspired me and I wanted to do this in the consumer space. They were both inspiring and helpful uh, in terms of talking about their methodology. And, and I was comparing that with the methodology that I wanted to implement at DVX. We do today a version of what Sutter Hill does. We're in consumer and we cook up ideas around our own table. If we've got engineers that bring the MVPs out into the market so we can start the feedback loop. And then we systematically run these companies through an increasing series of gauntlets until we really make sure we've got something. And then we pour growth capital in. Right before this, I talked to one of my partners, Ilya, and I said, hey, have you heard of this guy, John McNeil? He said, I think I have. And I said, well, he's doing this new thing, DVX. I don't really know what it is yet. And I'm not sure we're going to know for some time, but like, we should just keep our eye on this thing. Like, oh, there's something interesting about this. So I'm excited to see what happens. I am too. We've launched seven companies so far. Three of them are externally funded. Another is getting externally funded, which is really our validation. When a venture capital firm comes in and says, we think this is worth something and we want to be a part of it. And so we've been at this two years and we're getting better at it every day. Very cool, man. It's really cool. Yeah, very yeah. cool. When you hear the word grit, what does it mean to you? What do you think of? Ooh, that word brings me back to a childhood challenge I had from my dad. I had, we spent a lot of time working outside in my grandpa's fields, the garden, and we had this dog that I loved, but the dog would like chase anything that it started to see out of its corner of its eye. So I ended up doing more chasing the dog down than doing work. My dad was getting frustrated with me. So he said, why don't you find a way to like, if you really want the dog to be outside while we're working, why don't you find a way to keep the dog here? In fact, put a stake in the ground. We'll just tie the dog's leash to the stake and that way he won't run off so much. And then you can do your work. But in that area of the country in the summer, the ground gets baked. It's super hard. And my dad said to me, here's a metal stake. I was like seven. He's like, go pound this into the ground. And I walked out there and I start taking a wax with this sledgehammer on this thing. And it's not going into the ground. But my dad was like, he had set this expectation, like, go do this and don't come back until it's done. And when I think about grit, it is like banging on that stake and it's not working, not working, not working until it finally works. And then when it works, you get this pride and sense of accomplishment. Like I've actually done something tangible today. And I felt that as a six-year-old and I feel that as a guy now in his 50s, like starting companies, like that just pounding and pounding and pounding and pounding until you finally break through is grit to me. It's just a combination of determination and a real stubborn commitment to the outcome. John, thank you, man. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.